Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to all of our visitors. I am uh, Pastor Roger, and uh, if you're disappointed, you're not alone. So uh, it's uh, we we do want to welcome everybody. We're glad you're here with us, and uh, we are currently going through a series in the book of Ephesians. Now, you're here early, so it's good. You, you're here for the early part of the series, so you can jump right in and, and stay with us through the rest of it. Amen? Amen. So this week, we got through uh, Paul's really long sentence uh, last week in Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 14. And so now we get into really what is the content of this book. You know, what he did before was kind of introduce what God has done for us, how he did it, how we are assured in our faith, but now we, we kind of turn that corner into what Paul really is writing them about, what he wants them to know. And it starts this week, unsurprisingly, with Paul's prayer for spiritual power for the Ephesian believers. You know, if I had to ask you today, what would you rate, if, if you had to rate your prayer life, is it, is it going well or... Is it a, a prayer life that you're like, yeah, it might, might could use some tweaking? You know, don't be ashamed if it needs tweaking. I mean, it, you know, one of the, the big moments in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is the, uh, the apostles. These were men who grew up in a Jewish culture that they would have been taught prayer from the time they were small. And they would have had these prayers that would have been a part of their life the whole time. And then they meet Jesus and they spend some time with him. And they realize, like, I think my prayer life is lacking <laughs> because this guy prays for stuff and stuff happens. He prays for totally different things than I pray for. Now, what were the common, this is, this is kind of comical, what was the common prayer life for a male, a, a, a Jewish man in that culture? Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile and I'm not a woman. And they met Jesus and thought, huh. Maybe we're praying for the wrong things. <laughs> Maybe we've missed this a little bit. And they come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. In that world, to be a, a follower of a rabbi and to say the words, teach me to pray, would have been incredibly humbling. Because by the time you were following a rabbi in that culture, you should have had that figured out. Like that's something that the rabbi shouldn't have had to bother with. And they come to Jesus and they're like, clearly... We don't know what we're doing, <laughs> so please teach us how to pray. And we see the prayer that Jesus gave, as we talked about it before in the Lord's Prayer. We see those same principles on display in Paul's prayer for spiritual power. And in speaking of prayer, one commentator said, Many necessary and worthwhile endeavors compete for the Christian's time and energy, but without doubt... Prayer is the most important thing that ever engages his attention. It matures the soul, refines the character, promotes spiritual growth, and gives fortitude for victorious Christian living. A person's prayers are the mirror of his inner life. They reflect the depth of his emotions, the tenderness of his affections, the breadth of his sympathies, and the sincerity of his devotion. Moreover, a person's prayers are an index of his sense of values. They reveal the things he considers to be really important. Now, I read that to you this morning because 
that last line, that the things that are really important, that prayer reveals that, we see that in Paul's prayer beginning here in, in Ephesians 1.15. We see the things that this is what an apostle, okay, the apostle to the Gentiles, one who is called by God to lead others to God, this is his prayer. And when we compare this prayer to the typical prayer that we have in today's world, you know what? We need to go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray because it's lacking so many times. And so listen with me in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, it's like when Paul prays, when he starts talking about the things of God, he can't help but default back to the glory of Jesus and the gospel. Let that be our posture as well. When we pray, it all roads should always lead back to Jesus. And, and one of the things I want us to, to see at the very beginning of what Paul writes here <clears throat> are the signs of true faith. He gives them to us. And, and we may have read past it without even thinking about it that, that, wait a minute, Paul just gave us the test for if something is legitimate, legitimately of God. And what was it? In verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. You see, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ is what unites us and the fruit of the gospel is the proof. Our love for each other is the proof that we are united. Faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. See, Paul has heard reports of their love of Jesus. And the other churches, other believers, <clears throat> are the ones telling them. The reports are getting back to Paul of like, these Ephesian believers are legit. They're for real. Now, some of you may say, now, I thought Paul spent years and years in Ephesus. Of course he would know these people. Well, it's been several years since he's been there. And so the church in Ephesus has grown. There would be many people he didn't know now, and, and he's getting word back about how much the church in Ephesus has grown, and he's hearing the right things. He's heard reports of their love of Jesus and their love for the body of Christ. This is simple yet profound. All truth, as revealed by God through Christ, will lead us to two things. And what are they? Love of God, love of others. Always. 
Don't lose sight of that. Every time, all the time. This simple statement by Paul is profound because he is acknowledging the legitimacy of their faith, and he lists two things that he's looked for. That's it. All he needs to hear is that their faith is in Jesus Christ alone and that that faith is resulting in their love of neighbor. And he says, since I've heard those two things, I give thanks to God for you. I don't stop giving thanks to God for you. Isn't it amazing how he suddenly feels an eternal connection with them just based off of hearing that report? See, that's how united we should be in the body of Christ. Oh, you're a believer in Jesus Christ? We're brothers. Oh, you believe in Jesus Christ and you love your neighbor and it's demonstrated in your life? Then yes, we are brothers or sisters in Christ. We are family. Notice Paul doesn't have this long list of accomplishments or things that they need to agree on. He didn't pull out the checklist and like, okay, do you believe in this doctrine? Do you believe in this doctrine? Do you believe in this? Do you believe in this? Now, I'm not sidestepping any of that. He's saying Jesus Christ and a, a faith that is so real it leads you to love other people, that's what I need to hear. That's, that's what is important. And so, listen to how Jesus agrees with this, okay? Jesus taught this very same thing in John 13, 34, and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, here's Paul's test. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That was the test. See, Jesus himself said, if your faith is real, if your faith in him is real, you will love him and you will follow his commandment, which what? His commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that simple? Why do we overcomplicate this? That, oh, to be saved, I need to see this and then, and we get the checklist, and we need all of these things to happen. When he says, look, if your faith is real, these two things will be undeniable. And when I say undeniable, I mean undeniable. People who know you will say, you know what? They may be weird, but these things, we know about them. This is who they are. And, and so, literally, do not overcomplicate this. Because there is way too much division in the body of Christ over matters that simply do not matter. When we get to heaven, God's not going to ask certain questions that we make matters of fellowship today. And you know, when we get like this, and I mean this, when we get like this, boy, we can become petty, can't we? And I mean petty. Now, Paul, I notice we have the drums set up on the side of the stage. You know that's not right. You see, I had somebody once leave a church because we did that. And he told me, everybody knows the drums go in the center. I can't even hear the drums because they're on the side of the stage. Now, you want to know the kicker on that? They were electric drums. <laughs> they could have been in the other room. <laughs> and it wouldn't have made a difference. But you see, that's what we do is we will start looking for things. We'll start looking for things to be upset about. 
And instead of looking for things to disagree on, what did Paul do? He's looking for things to agree on. And he says, there are only two things. I am worried about two things. This is the litmus test as to whether or not faith is real. If your faith is real, you will be radically attached to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that attachment will lead you to love other other people. Every time, every time, all the time, in any age, in any culture, in any church, it doesn't matter. Now, how much does that simplify your life if you really put that into action? If you're like, you know what, I just need to see two things. Now, these are unnecessary two things. Okay, if somebody's as mean as a hornet and they hate everybody around them and claim the love of Jesus, I mean, but I don't think we know the same Jesus. I don't think we do. Now, are, are you mad at something? You know, what's going on? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to find out what's going on. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll love your neighbor. And he says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciple. So that is absolutely the, the bedrock core of everything. And we have to establish this now. Okay, because Ephesians is going to get so deep in some places. The theology is going to get so deep and so meaningful that it's really kind of that reminder of don't lose sight of what is most important when we start studying these other things. Because Ephesians, it's fascinating. There is so much in this book that it's just going to be fascinating. It's going to be fun. It's going to be challenging. But when we learn something, when we're reading scripture, when we're worshiping, when we're serving, when we're fellowshipping, ask this question. Is this leading me to love God and love people? If it isn't doing both, then either we need to keep learning or we need to change what we're doing. Now, sometimes I say keep learning because all good biblical theology will lead you to those two things. Sometimes we just stop short. We get to a part of it that it fascinates us and we're like, ooh, this is really good stuff. And we don't see it through to its natural progression. And so we stop short and we get fascinated intellectually, but we don't apply it personally and move into the field of how does this help me love people. And so when I say sometimes we just need to go a little deeper, we need to keep studying it and keep rethinking it sometimes until it challenges us in how we love others. Because if it does not lead us to love others, it is incomplete at best and pharisaical at worst, hypocritical at worst. And here is Paul's opinion of deep theology that does not lead us to love other people. Okay, y'all ready for this? 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, say it with me, I am nothing. You know what? Paul's not exaggerating there. He says, if you, you, could, you could have the keenest theological mind and, and just memorize scripture and be able to talk about doctrine after doctrine, but if it doesn't lead you to love people, you haven't understood it correctly yet. You have not understood it correctly. You might be on the road, but you're not there yet. And Paul emphasizes, he says, I am nothing, nothing. 
So that means a faith that acknowledges God but does not acknowledge neighbor is no faith at all. It's not legit. And so what do we see in Paul's life? We see Paul saying, I heard you love Jesus and you love your neighbors. And what does it lead him to do? I haven't stopped praying for you since then. He immediately is connected to them, is praying for them, is loving them from a distance. They don't even know they're being loved like this yet. They're getting a letter finding out that the apostle Paul's been praying for them. Wouldn't that be great? You get a letter in the mail. Hey, I just want you to know I've found out you're a Christian. I'm praying for you. And I haven't stopped. And I'm saying thank you to God for you every time I pray. Wow, that would that'd be encouraging, right? That would kind of make your day. And so, what Paul then prays for. See, we needed to establish that. That is what true faith looks like. It's what it does. Because what Paul starts to pray for is that he wants them to seek true spiritual power. And this is where we get messed up in today's world because we want to make our faith and the benefits of our faith and the blessings of our faith about this world, and it's not about this world. It's exercised in this world. It's displayed in this world, but it is not about this world. And when we turn that corner in our faith and we can seek after this kind of spiritual power and we understand how it works, it changes. It's a game changer in your life. Okay? It is a game changer because we go from having prayers that that may or may not be answered. We just don't understand it. God may seem distant and what's going on and why do I pray and I pray and I pray and nothing happens to, wait a minute, Jesus teach me how to pray. And we get it right and we start praying for the things that line us up with God's will stuff starts happening. Things start happening. And you know what's crazy is where they start to happen the most? In my own heart. I don't start changing the world around me through my prayers. I start finding that the world within me starts to change, and I mean radically change, as God starts to alter my view of reality, starts to change the way I think, starts to change what I value. I start to experience God's power in my own life. And as I change then my world around me starts to change. You know why? Because I become the change agent. You see, one of our favorite prayers, unfortunately, is God change them. Right? God change them. When we look here at what Paul says, it's not, no, it's not change them. It's God change me. And so listen again, verses 17 through 19. He says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, I'm going to be honest. That prayer does not, re- does not get repeated a whole lot in our typical Christianity in America today. These are not the things we pray for. It's what Paul prayed for. It's what Paul told the Ephesians he was praying for them to have. 
And if Paul's praying for them to have it, then I would think it would translate that we should be praying that we too would have it, that this is what God wants us to have. This is what God is saying, pray for this, ask for it, and I will give it to you. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. And yet for some reason, we still want to make our prayer life about changing this world right now. And it turns into what many of y'all have heard me say so many times, our prayer life, especially in churches, turns into the health and wellness report. Who's sick? Okay, let's write it all down. And it's not that we, we should pray for the sick. Yeah, I'm not saying that, but don't let that be the entirety of our prayers. Listen to what he says. He says, Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is such a loaded sentence. The Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation. What is wisdom? It is the ability to live well by the truth. The ability to recognize truth from error and walk within it. In revelation, you know what? We don't know truth apart from God revealing it to us. None of us in this room is smart enough to find and understand the truth apart from God revealing it to us. And so our prayers should reflect that kind of dependence. God, I need you to show me what I need to know. It's arrogant for us to go to Scripture and to engage in spiritual matters thinking we can figure it out for ourselves. We can't. And Paul says, I want you to have the spirit of revelation and wisdom. I want you to have all of this together. But then, my, my favorite word, I mean this is my favorite word in, in the Greek New Testament. I don't deal a lot with the Greek, but this one will always get my attention. Because he says the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That word knowledge is a special word in the Greek. It is epinosis, which means experiential knowledge. There's gnosis, which is head knowledge. Uh, there's, there's another word, which is kind of learned knowledge. And then there's epinosis, which the word epi means above. This is a higher knowledge. This is that experiential knowledge, that kind of knowledge you can only have through experience. And the, the best example I have for that is riding a bike. You can get all kinds of knowledge about bicycles, right? You could read about it. You could know the physics in your mind of why you can balance on two wheels and go. You could explain all of that mathematically, right? And yet still not know how to ride a bike, right? That is theology that doesn't lead to love. Epinosis is that knowledge that we know firsthand, deep inside, that is experientially learned. Now think about experientially learned. So what do you, I, he says, I want you to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in your experience of him. See, this isn't theoretical for Paul. This isn't just I want you to be good at Bible drill or be able to quote a bunch of, of verses. He's saying, I want you to know him. I want you to know him at deep, personal, experiential levels. A knowledge that nobody can take from you. And so he says, that means having the eyes of your heart enlightened. You know what that means? That, that, that word enlightened means to bring light into that which is dark. Now, what does light have a way of revealing? Everything, <laughs> right? 
How many of you have ever, you know, been in your house and, and, you know, you think it's clean and then you open the shutters and the light comes in and what do you see? Dust. Like you realize like that much is, why is the air that dirty? It's the air. It's not supposed to be like that. And you just, it, the light just exposed. That's what he's talking about. He says, I want your heart to have the light poured into it so that the truth and the hard truth and the dark spots, everything is exposed, revelation, so that you then can have the wisdom to apply the truth of God to your heart and walk with him in power. Now, how many of us pray that regularly? God, shine the light in and show everything. See, that's why we default to the health and wellness report. It's a lot safer. It's a lot easier. You see, this is something that goes way beyond intellectual agreement with the things of God. This is knowing deep in one's being, in your mind, in your soul, in your spirit, and being fundamentally changed by the truth of God. And then he prays. To know these things means that we're going to show it in three things in our lives. Okay, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, experiencing God through wisdom and revelation, we are going to walk away with three things that will be the bedrock of your faith. Okay, and one, he says, what is the hope of his calling? The hope of his calling. Okay, the hope to which he has called you. This is not a flimsy hoping for the best in life. I hope it works out. I hope it warms up tomorrow. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope it does rain. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about a hope that secures the soul for every storm and every trial and every blessing and everything in life that comes. That center point that you can draw from in any culture, in any age, at any time, anywhere that you can say, you know what, I know my God and I know he lives and I know he loves me and I know he has secured my future in heaven. It is an anchor for the will, for the emotions, and for the soul in the truth of God's promises that are found in salvation in Jesus Christ. And when your heart is enlightened, you know this. You know it. And nothing can move you off of it. Paul will later describe in Ephesians not being immature and tossed to and fro by everything that happens and every wind of doctrine and trickery that comes up in life. This is why, because the hope of God is an anchor. Second, he says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we spoke about this last week. That we have a divine inheritance, a calling, an identity. It's not just a lifestyle. It is a genuine life that he has called us to, to walk with him, to, to be a part of his kingdom, to be his children, and to adopt that inheritance, that divine nature within ourselves because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That when we know who we are in Christ, we don't just have a future, we have a present identity in Christ. And it is rock solid. Nothing can change that. Right now, our world is having an identity crisis. And, and I mean that. 
We are, have, we are in the middle of a generational identity and cultural identity crisis right now. You know what? A person who has the hope of God in their heart and a person who knows their inheritance in Christ, they don't have identity crisis. They know who they are and they know what they're about. And it's not based on external situations. You're the same person on the mountain as you are in the valley. It doesn't matter because you know who you are. And you know why you can be the same person is not just because you have a future and not just because you know who you are, but you know who you work for. You know who you belong to. And that's what Paul says. He says, know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you could get up right now and give a testimony to the immeasurable greatness of God's power in your life? Have you ever asked for that? See, this is what Paul prays for. He says, I want you to know God's immeasurable power. So not just, hey, God did a couple of good things for you. Something in your life that you could look at and go, all glory to him. This is beyond me. His power is so great. What he has done in my life is so great. I can't describe it outside of his immeasurable power. See, we settle. Sometimes we just settle for what the world tells us we need. And so that's what we start praying for. And God is like, no, 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 no. That's easy. That's nothing. You could do that on your own. Are you praying for things that you couldn't do on your own? For God's immeasurable power to be active in your life. You know why? Because nothing is impossible for God. And Paul wants us to know this as more than a fact. He wants it to be our experience. Was it Paul's experience? You better believe it. Road to Damascus, three days of blindness. But you know what? That's not even, he won't even go to that. You know what he goes to? Every time in scripture when he's going to brag about the power of God, you know what he talks about? The churches that he serves. He says, you all, what God is doing in you is the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's great. That is God's power on display. I thank my God for all of you. You see, it's not about Paul. It's not about him. It's about God being glorified. And he looks at the spread of the church in an incredibly dark and pagan Roman empire. And he sees it catching fire. And he's like, this is amazing. And he says, I want you to know where this is going. You have a hope. You have an identity. And God's power, his true power is with you. And God has not changed his mind since Paul wrote this. It applies to you just as much as it did to them. So how much are we praying for God's spiritual power? How much are we praying for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened? That we would know the hope to which he has called us. That we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. That's what our prayers need to look like because this prayer is a prayer for spiritual knowledge and power. 
You see, whereas the world's philosophy is truly know thyself and is obsessed with self-help, Paul's prayer is one of dependence on, humility towards, and power from, and glorification of God. In short, the world says know yourself, while Paul says know God. Know God, you'll know yourself. Try to know yourself apart from God, you'll get it wrong. You'll have an identity crisis. And there are some of you in here that can testify to that. You're like, I tried the world. I tried that. I went this way, and man, it, it got bad. I forgot who I was. I did stupid things. I, I did whatever. I mean, it's an identity crisis. We forget. And then you come back to your senses, like the, 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 the prodigal son. And what does it say there in that story? It says he came to himself. You know what that is? He remembered who he was. Identity crisis over. He remembered who he was, and he's like, yeah, I can do better than this. And then we look back on life and we're like, why was I so dumb? What happened? You know what? We had an identity crisis. We forgot who we were in Christ. And so this is something we have to pay special attention to in our own lives. This is Paul's concern. This is his prayer. This is his highest desire for the body of Christ. Thus, it should be our highest desire as well. Nowhere, now notice this, nowhere in this prayer are material prosperity, physical health, or social status mentioned. Nowhere. You know why? Because God's already promised those things to us in ways that glorify Him. He didn't promise us, He promised us social status, it's just a different kind of status. It's that status of being an outsider that's going to rock the boat every time. That's, he said, that's who you're going to be. Get used to it. You will be a social presence, just not one celebrated by the world. You know why, though, these aren't mentioned in this prayer? Because they are not higher pursuits. They're worldly pursuits. And we want to pursue that which is higher. That's the whole theme of this entire sermon series is reaching higher. That's our theme at Grace Family for 2023 is to reach. Reach beyond what we have now, what you see. Reach into eternity. Now, these are matters that are needed. We, we all need physical health. We all need, need food. We all need you know, money to a degree. We all need socialization, we all need, you know, a social life. We need these things, but they are things of this world. And so what did Jesus tell us about those? He says, don't worry about those things. Don't worry about them because God's going to, he'll take care of you. He says it like this in Matthew 6, 31 and 33. He says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now what he's saying is don't make worldly pursuits the chief end of your life or your spiritual life. Seek for higher things, and God will fill in the gaps with all this other stuff. He will. He will take care of you. He will provide for your physical needs. He will provide for your emotional, social needs. He will provide those things. He says, don't be anxious or worry, but seek the higher things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There's nothing higher. 
He's saying seek the higher things first. So our prayer lives then should reflect seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness over the things of this world. That's what Paul has shown us in this passage. And you know why? Because the gospel itself, the root of our faith, is the pinnacle of God's power displayed. There's nothing higher that we can seek than what God has already shown us. See, that's why Paul suddenly turned. It feels like he, it feels like he loses track of the prayer, right? He's, he's praying, and then suddenly he's like talking about God. He's talking about the gospel. Because he says that, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power, which he's working towards you. And then in verse 20, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, that feels like a preacher moment, right? He's praying, and he gets distracted, and he just kind of runs over here, and it's like, oh, and by the way, Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and you need to follow him. Except there's really more to it than that. He's showing us the foundation of our faith. We can pray these things, and we can have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I'll get that out. We can have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in our experience of him, Because there is none higher. Jesus answers to no one. He has been seated at the right hand of the Father and is reigning. Okay, so a few things here. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is above all rule and all authority and power and dominion. His very name is above every name for all eternity. It will never change. It will never change. And the resurrection is the proof that every claim Jesus made about his divine nature, about him being God, are true. A lot of people have claimed a lot of stuff. None of them have been able to raise themselves from the dead. Only one has accomplished that. That was Jesus Christ. And here's where Paul wants us to understand this, okay? If if we're going to understand the immeasurable greatness of power, which he's working towards us, He wants us to know the nature of that power. And what is the nature of that power? It is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. The same exact power. Now, I don't know about you. That should make you feel good. When you read the gospel accounts and you read about the resurrection and you read about the day of Pentecost and the fire of the Holy Spirit coming down and people being empowered, that you are a part of that exact same story. The same power that conquered sin and death is conquering sin and death in you. That power that is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion is working in you. The same power. The name that is above all names has claimed you as his own. You feeling that hope of his calling? You feeling that power that works towards you? You feeling that identity, that inheritance in the saints? 
See, that's why Paul turns and goes straight to the gospel, because if we look at Jesus, we find ourselves. We find our faith, we find our hope, we see his power on display. And to understand how that power works, we then have to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because God works in specific ways. He did with Jesus, and if he worked that way with Jesus, he's not going to change his mind for us. That's how he works. And it's perfect, and it's righteous, and it's holy, and he gets the glory. But we want to change that sometimes. We were like, God, I I want all the blessings, but I don't want the obedience that goes with it. I don't want the suffering that goes before the resurrection. I just want resurrection. Does it happen that way? What has to happen before resurrection can happen? Death. Every time. What did Jesus say? If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. You see, it always starts with the death. We have to die to self every single time. It's how God does it. And so we, we not only find the anchor in Jesus Christ, we find the model of how to walk in faith by looking at him. And Paul just mirrors that. I mean, he literally just mirrors that for us and, and says it in a different way than Jesus did, but they're the exact same truths. And so we have to die to self, carry a cross, and then God lifts us up. Okay, so here is the pattern for your life. Okay, you ready? Obedience, death, resurrection. That's not hard, is it? Maybe the death part is a little harder than we like. Obedience, death, resurrection. And we'll go through this over and over and over in life. This is a pattern that will repeat itself over and over. But what makes it worth it? What makes it worth it is the hope of his calling. His inheritance in the saints, the identity that we get. And the power that is at work within us inside of that process. And that's why Paul prays. He says, I want you to know this. Now, this isn't the entirety of this prayer. Paul does get sidetracked, and he comes back to this prayer in chapter 3. He finishes this prayer in chapter 3. So it's going to be a little while before we get to the end of this. But this is reflected in other places in Scripture, and we're going to close with this. But in James 4.10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We don't pray for exaltation. What do we pray for? We pray for spiritual wisdom, revelation, knowledge of him. We pray to be faithful. We pray to know him better. We pray to know who we are in him, the divine inheritance. We pray to know his power that is at work within us. We pray to obey. Then we deny ourselves then we get to resurrection. Then we get to that display of power that God will do through us and in us that we won't be able to explain, that will bring joy, that will show the fruit of the Spirit. That is how we pray for spiritual power. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for today. And God, we... We come united under the name of Jesus Christ today. We come united as brothers and sisters redeemed by the blood of Jesus to pray that we would together have that spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of 
of you. God, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. God, that you would shine the light in, that we would see the truth, that we would be changed by your power. God, that we would know the hope of the calling that you have called us to. God, that we would know the glorious inheritance that you have given us. And God, that we would know your immeasurably great power. God, that our lives, our eyes would be fixed on Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't follow anything else for meaning or for identity or for power in life. That we wouldn't worry about the things of this world. We wouldn't be anxious, but we would trust you to provide. God, this is our prayer today as a group, as the body of Christ, united under your headship. Be glorified in us today, Lord Jesus. Where there's confusion, bring clarity. Where there's despair, bring hope. God, where there's weakness, show your strength. Where there's brokenness, bring healing. But God, you be glorified in our lives in every way. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen. Amen.